Okay, welcome all to the fourth annual Safaraz Pakistan lecture. Uh, my heart sank uh, a few moments ago when our distinguished uh, guest of honour told me half of the stories on Wikipedia about her are wrong. Uh, not that I would use Wikipedia for such a uh, <coughs> distinguished uh, introduction. All right, I assume for most of you, you'll know, need absolutely no introductions to uh, Asma Jahangir, but I hope some of you do need an introduction. This is one of the main intentions of the Safra's Pakistan lecture, is to bring the discussion and debate about Pakistan to a wider audience, to those kind of beyond uh, the usual crowd of Pakistan watchers. Uh, so Asma Jahangir, in sort of brief, is a very distinguished uh, human rights lawyer in Pakistan, is a social activist, or Barbara mentioned an anti-social activist, one might want to say. Uh, uh, Asma founded the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. Um, Asma comes from a long background of miscreants. Uh, right back in 1972, her father was uh, arrested, detained by the then government of Zulfikar Bhutto. Uh, so this obviously runs in the family. Asma was herself detained by uh, various other military governments in 1983 during the Restoration for Democracy movement against General Zia, 2007 in the Lawyers movement against the then military dictatorship of Musharraf. Among the, kind of the many important issues Asma, Asma has been involved with, campaigning against uh, the death penalty, child labour, and the protection of religious minorities in Pakistan. <coughs> Among the very, very long list of awards are uh, the Légion d'honneur in France. So while asthma should rightly be viewed as very remarkable, unique, and cherished, I think there's more to this uh, lecture course than celebrating the unique and the cherished. The second big aim of the Safaraz Pakistan lecture is that, yes, of course, Pakistan has many problems. I mean, if you look, type... Uh, Pakistan into the Guardian website or Amazon books, you get this slew of pictures of explosions and terrorists and uh, threatening images. But while Pakistan does have its problems, the second big point purpose of this lecture is to push the idea is that, that Pakistan is not exclusively defined by those problems. We could, for example, focus on the fact that Pakistan has had four military coups since independence. And this is often compared to the sustaining of democracy, almost sustaining of democracy in India. And we could conclude from this, our definition, our idea of Pakistan could be that it's the military are strong, that it's got a fragile and unstable democracy. But we could also flip that thought on its side, and we could think instead of the four mass, widespread and peaceful, largely peaceful mobilizations against those military dictatorships, then in every case depose the military dictatorship, again, largely peacefully. I mean, Pakistan has had four Arab-style or Pakistan springs. So we can think of Pakistan not just about in terms of its problems, but in terms of its passionate commitment to democracy. It's a very vibrant civil society. <coughs> and, as I said, asthma is unique and cherished, but there are many asthmas in Pakistan, the strong-minded women, lawyers and activists much like her. And finishing, you know, with that wonderful expression, one should never doubt the ability of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, little else ever has. And Pakistan is blessed with a surprisingly large number of those like-minded people. 
So without further, I will pass over to Asma for this evening's presentation. scandal that has uh, plagued him and his family. He was uh, disqualified from office by the country's Supreme Court. Pakistan's Supreme Court has disqualified Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif from holding office over a long-running case of corruption. Judges of the five-member bench of the Apex Court unanimously announced their vote against the Premier on Friday. Thank you very much for all of you to be here and for having invited me. And I would very especially like to welcome whom I say our daughter, Malala, here. She has made us proud. This is Pakistan, chaotic. You see a large number of actors there, politicians, cartoons, people happy, people angry. But behind all that noise and din is also a kind of a resistance. And I am happy that Malala is here because she signifies that resistance that is there in Pakistan and all of you that I hear as well. I would like to start by saying how fortunate I felt you were when I came here this morning and I looked at the gardens here and the atmosphere here and that I felt envious because I have never studied abroad. I have always studied in Pakistan, I've lived there, I've worked there and perhaps that is why I'm here for this lecture. Because while you can learn a lot about a country from your research, from what you see, from what you hear, there is nothing like the touch when you're there. The experience of not what is reported, but also what is not reported. The feeling 
the actors that are there on the ground. And since the age of perhaps 10, I have seen active politics at very close range. And I often used to say to my father, when he used to tell us that, well, it are bad times, maybe we will have another spell of dictatorship. And I remember one day saying to him that when autumn comes in our country, just before rain, you can have a certain smell. And then all the worms come out of the ground. And now I can see when the worms are coming out of the ground and there's a certain smell, it's a lull before the storm. Gradually and gradually, we are seeing a lot of storm in our country, but then the din will come. I just want to be able to say that Pakistan has been through strange partnerships. And very early in Pakistan's history, although I don't want to give you a history lecture, because having seen all of you, I think you all know history very well. But I'm not saying, and I'm not going to repeat historical events, but what went on behind the scenes while this history was being created. And I can look at, for example, as a lawyer, at all the case law that is there, and they speak a lot. They tell you what has happened behind the scenes. And basically, when people say, and when you hear Yusuf Raza Gilani, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, <coughs> and the present Interior Minister of Pakistan, that there is a state within a state. There has been a deep state in Pakistan from 24th of October 1954. And that was the first time that the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan was dissolved. And that is when the steep, deep state began to evolve and to take within itself those people who were from the upper class or elite or the middle classes and then in their fold they became what I now term as the permit class. And why do I say it as a permit class? Because many of you may not know that you were not allowed to do business in Pakistan till late 70s. The only way you could do business was to have a permit. So if you wanted to open let's say a flour mill, you had to have a permit. And there was a permit class and there was a non-permit class in Pakistan. I happen to be the non-permit class. I am not saying that because I resent it. I'm saying that because I think that that is the strength that I have, whatever it's worth, I have acquired because I was not the permit class and I could see things in another direction, in another point of view, rather than the permit class. What happened to democracy and what happened to rule of law? And this is basically the lecture. Now my thesis is that you cannot have a democratic development without rule of law that is protected, that is strengthened. And you cannot have rule of law without a democratic deepening of democracy. And this is the mistake that both politicians and judges of Pakistan have made, where they felt that they could survive on their own. There were times when they played with each other. In the very beginning of Pakistan, 
it was the judges that decided that they did not want to go with politicians. And it started with the Tamizuddin case, I will not go into the history of it, most of you know, when the Constituent Assembly was dissolved, the Speaker of the Assembly, who actually sat around for a whole month, and it was only when the two policemen went asking him to vacate his house, that he decided to challenge the dissolution of the Assembly. Before that, he had taken it very well. And he went to court, and the court in the Sindh High Court restored the Assembly. But the Federal Court said the Assembly could not be restored on a technical ground, and the technical ground was that the powers under which they restored the Assembly was a law that was passed by the Constituent Assembly, which had dual uh, 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 jurisdiction, that they could make the Constitution and pass legislation. But that legislation was actually not signed by the Governor General, who was the founder of the nation who was ill, and so as he was ill, he had not signed a large number of laws. So that was the only point in which the assembly was not restored. But soon thereafter, a man was arrested called Yusuf Patel. I don't know if any of you know who Yusuf Patel was, actually. Yusuf Patel was a man who was arrested in Larkana, and I just met somebody from Larkana here who was from Larkana, who was arrested under what is called the Gundas Act, because he was cutting off women's hair if they didn't cover their head. And the court said, well, we can't arrest him under this law, because this law was also not signed by the Governor General. And if you look at Pakistan's newspapers of those days, there was a UN cry by a number of journalists saying, this is not fair, this man should have been put behind bars because he's a, he's a loose character and he's been teasing women. And now when you look at the names of those journalists, you begin to see that these are the same worms that I talk about just before autumn. So you can, you can see how the stage is set for something else to come forward because they picked up on something that was very popular, that how can the courts protect a man who was a ruffian and not give something or not make a law where you could actually arrest people for such a crime. And so, very conveniently, the Governor General then took on his emergency powers and said every law that was there in the past is now validated. And he sent to the Supreme Court, to the Federal Court at that time, saying, well, I have done it. What is your opinion of it? And the most important case law, if you want to read, please do read it, is called Reference by His Excellency the Governor General. And in that reference, the Federal Court, except for one judge, said, yes, absolutely. You can actually do a little wrong to put a larger right. So you can now play with the law. And that the emergency powers that the Governor General is using is fine and he can continue to use it. And this is how eventually they were able to build on that jurisprudence to justify two years later the takeover of a military government. 
And how was the takeover of a military government done? And the reason I am giving you this history is not that you can't read it up. There is a reason for it. Was a case called the Doso case. I don't know if any of you have read it. But who was Doso? Doso was a man who was a murderer from Loralai, Balochistan. And he was convicted by the FCR, which is the Frontier Crimes Regulation. And now public opinion obviously said that you must punish Doso. And so the court said, yes, we are going to punish Doso. So we're going to bend the law a little bit. And that is how when the law of necessity came into being. The reason I am saying this to you is because there are several times questions to me saying, why are you protecting terrorists? I am not protecting terrorists. I am protecting rule of law. So when you say, yes, let there be military courts for terrorists, what you are saying is, open the doors of military courts. It may start with the terrorists, but it can end anywhere else. And this is the way it is always played in every judiciary that is a friend of dictators rather than a friend of the people. Because they like to remain popular, but at the same time, they use a character that is the accused or a victim that is extremely innocent to bend the law and to use principles of law that are incorrectly situated in that particular case law. And one of the reasons that the court said that it is fine that the Constituent Assembly was dissolved was that we had not been able to make a constitution till 1955. But when you read the newspapers of Pakistan, you will see everyday headlines. You will see headlines saying the constitution is complete, the select committee is about to now take it to the Constituent Assembly. So it was at the verge of cons the constitution being passed by the Constituent Assembly when that assembly was dissolved and not earlier. At the same time, you saw reports which I think is, are very telling because what was the problem in constitution making of Pakistan? There were two major issues. The first issue was the role of religion in Pakistan and to this day we have not been able to come to any uh, consensus of what is going to be the role of religion in Pakistan. And the second was what is going to be the powers of the provinces. And even now, when you talk about the 18th Amendment, which was very recent, where provinces got autonomy, the re one of the reasons given by the military today for being angry with the, with the civilian authorities is because they have given autonomy to provincial, uh, to provinces. And when you give autonomy to provinces, you're cutting away at your defense budget indirectly. And so there is uh, that uh, um, the, the tension between the military and the civilian, uh, I'm not going to say civilian rule, I would say between the civilian existence is also um, an economic tension. Now, there is also the fact that because of several military governments and because of the way Pakistan was created, it is a very difficult country to govern. In, in some ways, it's ungovernable. Because if you look at Pakistan, you have Azad Kashmir, which is not part of Pakistan, and yet it is with Pakistan. 
and there is a Kashmir Council that looks into the affairs of Azad Kashmir. The, the Kashmir Council is presumably, or supposed to be, uh, chaired by the Prime Minister of Pakistan, but it is in control of the military of Pakistan. And you have Gilgit and Baltistan, which is not a part of Kashmir, and yet it is a part of Kashmir. And I have recently been there many times where there is a movement of young people who want to be Pakistani citizens, and they are being arrested for insurgency. This is the only insurgency I know in the whole world where people want to be a part of a country, and that country is arresting them, saying, why do you want to be a part of our country? <laughs> and it's a very sad story, because there are young people of 30, 32, who say that we are stateless. Our glaciers are Pakistanis, our mountains are Pakistanis, but we are not Pakistani. And, and there is no answer that we can give them. And then you have FATA. As you know, there are seven agencies and other group, other frontier, uh, what is it called, something else? Regions that are with FATA. And to this day, the fate of FATA cannot be decided. They only got a right to vote very recently when there was a caretaker government of Mr. Khalid somebody just before Benazir's, uh, in 1990 in fact. That's the first time they got the right to vote. 1997. 1997. Maraj Khalid's government. Maraj Khalid's government. But they had no right to vote. <coughs> so how do you amalgamate FATA into Pakistan is a very difficult question, which is being debated today in Pakistan. Now, why is FATA being FATA? And I used to be quite amused when I used to hear BBC and CNN say the autonomous region of Pakistan. It is hardly autonomous. It's the most controlled region of Pakistan. And FATA is a place where a large section of smuggling takes place. And this is one of the realities of Pakistan, that we like smuggling, we don't like trade. We like smuggling from Chaman, we like smuggling from Fata, but we will not have trade with our neighbors. And so there are vested, strong vested interests that have over the years emerged, which have made it impossible for any civilian government to take difficult decisions. And if they don't take those difficult decisions, then they have an economic meltdown and their governance will remain poor. Similarly, if you look at Balochistan, I don't know if there's anyone here from Balochistan or not, but in Balochistan you have two sections, A section and B section. In the A section of Balochistan, law and order is controlled by the police. But in the B section, it is not controlled by the police. It is controlled by the levies, and who are the levies? <coughs> levies are people who are selected by the local chief and is accountable to the local chief. And to this day, there has been a tug of war going on between the levies and the police. And there was a period when it, they were amalgamated, but there was an outrage, and once again, the levies have gone back to being levies, and the police has gone back to be police. 
Now, what is the reason for all this? The reason is, unfortunately, that in Pakistan, there are two diverge influences and diverge interests. Pakistan's civilian population wants health and education. Pakistan's military also wants health and education, but only for their children. And they want that health and education through a paradigm of security. Now, their concept of security state is very different to the concept that you and I would think of a security state. For them, security state means, which has very recently been expressed by them, that security is also interlinked to economics. I wish I fully agree with them that it is, because through security, the economics of the country is depleting. Now, if security is interlinked with the country's economy, then at least we should have a transparent economy. Pakistan is perhaps one of the few countries in the world where the parliament cannot debate the budget of the military. It dare not debate the budget of the military. Pakistan is one of the few countries of the world where its intelligence operates without law. Because a question was asked in the parliament, under what law does the intelligence agencies of Pakistan operate? And the answer given by the interior minister was that it's a state secret. And I've never heard of a law being a state secret. And similarly, in the courts, there have been petitions, several petitions, where the courts have been asked that the interior ministry be directed to give to the courts the parameters under which the intelligence agencies work. And the courts have looked at those petitions, have made great news. There have been headlines, but to this day, we have not got an answer. I only come now straight away to what is happening here. If you see that when politics comes to a certain point of disagreement between many factions, there are issues that have become, that, are, that emerge as issues of conflict. The first is what is national, what is national interest? And the second is, who is more religious than the other? And we saw that in the recent years. And if you look at this video, the reason I brought it here was that we hear two sides of the story. If you will look at Pakistan's media, you will be assured every single day by every politician and by the spokesperson of the military that the civilians and the military are on the same page. It's become a cliche. They're on the same page. And yet, you have tweets from the military undermining civilian authority, and you have statements from the civilian authorities undermining the military. And at the end of it, they will both give a statement, like a parrot saying, but the civilians and the military leadership is on the same page. And similarly, if you look at what is happening in the courts, there are newspaper headlines saying that the courts are there to protect the Constitution. The courts are there for accountability. But I have never had a single case, I have never read a single case of accountability of a drug mafia, 
of a land mafia, of a general in the army, but accountability is always there very selectively at very selective times. And I'm afraid that this whole jargon of accountability that started in the 50s against politicians, and it started with EBDO, which was keeping politicians away from politics on the pretext that they were corrupt, but subsequently it was written very widely that these politicians were not monetarily corrupt, but they were morally corrupt in the sense intellectually corrupt. I still have to meet a politician who's not intellectually corrupt. <coughs> and so that intellectual corruption and moral corruption now find space in our constitution and in our legal, uh, uh, in, our, in our laws as well. For example, if you want to be a member of the National Assembly or of the Senate or of the Provincial Assemblies, you have to be a person who is 100% practicing Muslim. You have to speak the truth. There is nothing dishonest that you can do morally or otherwise. Although the words used are not sadiq and amin, the word is honest and amin, which means that you are puritanical, 100% and that you can do no wrong. And I'm afraid that in other societies you may find people like that, I don't know. But certainly in my country, I have so far not found someone who actually fulfills that qualifications. So it's very easy to pick up anyone and take them to court and say this person does not come within the qualification that is laid down in the law. And it is for the judges to decide whom they wish to disqualify earlier and whom they wish to disqualify later. Timing, of course, being absolutely important. To the extent that there was a case where one of the, one of, a woman parliamentarian uh, had contested elections, she had won elections, and she was very close to General Musharraf. So the Chief Justice did not like her at all. And her opponent filed a case against her saying, she is actually not the person who sat for this examination. Because in between there was also another qualification that you had to have, was that you had to be a graduate to become a member of the National Assembly. So basically, only 10% of the people of the country could contest elections. And the rest couldn't contest elections because that was Musharraf-style democracy, a democracy for the elite. And in any event, the case went on, and the judge felt, no, this woman, handwriting experts came and said, no, it was the same woman. The case was won by her. It went to the Supreme Court. And strangely enough, before the very Chief Justice, whom she had had a row with, and the Chief Justice looked at her and said, I don't think that you look like the woman in the photograph. So I will disqualify you for life. And she has been disqualified for life. And her photograph went for forensic. And the forensic expert said, she is the same person in the photograph. But the Chief Justice said, I do not believe the forensic because I believe my own eyes. And our Chief Justice does not have very strong eyes. Anybody can see. So. This woman, to this day, cannot contest elections. And similarly, there are other 
such examples. So, in Pakistan, the question that is emerging gradually, I mean for me or for people who believe in democracy, who believe in rule of law, who believe in independence of a judiciary, who think that the judiciary, and I feel very strongly, that the judiciary has played a very negative role in Pakistan. It has been a populist judiciary where they have used and misused certain uh, rights or certain powers that they had, particularly the Supreme Court, and what they have called as an activist Supreme Court and public interest litigation. And it's very strange that public interest litigation has come in very handy for the Supreme Court. It comes in very handy when the Chief Justice's son is accused of corruption. So then so motor powers of the Supreme Court come in handy, the son is called, and the son is then told that may God take his own imtihan, what examination from you. So he is left to God, whereas the others are not. And similarly, there have been other cases of public interest litigation where a female actress was caught with two bottles of wine and she was hauled up and a case was instituted against her. There have been other cases of public interest litigation where friends of judges uh, were not promoted by the government and in their so motor powers, regardless of the law, they have given directions to the executive that their friends should be promoted. And largely, public interest litigation is for judges themselves. In the area of public interest litigation, they have decided how they will appoint judges, how they will appoint themselves. In public interest litigation, they have decided how their strength will be, um, they will have more strength and more power. So today we are at a point of time where anyone can see, and I think that it's very important not to get confused, because there is also the first thing that any dictator will do to its populace is first to confuse them. And once you get confused, you get into a debate that has nothing to do with the actual root cause of what is happening in the country. Today, the root cause is that the military of Pakistan has to decide whether they can live under the supervision or under the control of a civilian power or whether they want to rule the country themselves. I was just heard my friend say that there have been four coups in Pakistan. There have been many soft coups in Pakistan. And even today, the military runs foreign affairs, the military runs interior, the military runs Fatah, the military runs Azad Kashmir, the military runs Gilgit Baltistan, the military runs Balochistan, the military runs via its paramilitary Karachi. So there are pockets of Punjab and pockets of Sindh that the civilian government can do perhaps what they wish, but that also in a very limited manner. Unfortunately, many of the politicians have also been their creation. And they continue to back the military till the military kicks them out. 
and then lessons are learned. But having done that, where politicians have stabbed each other, where you saw this, that one politician is standing against the other, and now that Mr. Nawaz Sharif has been disqualified, the same principle may apply to other politicians who were seen eating sweetmeats while he was being disqualified. And we saw that earlier when Mr. Nawaz Sharif himself was very happy uh, when uh, the previous government was being uh, dislodged, was being, men men was being uh, 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 menaced around with by the military. Mr. Nawaz Sharif was extremely happy about it and was talking about national interest. And that is the question today, what is national interest? I would end here by saying that if I had to look at things today. For me, the greatest national interest today is for people to take a decision. And that decision is that there is a reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground is that you have politicians. I'm not saying that all politicians are murky, but there are a large number of murky politicians. But believe me that I have also seen politicians who have been spent their entire lives in jail. I have also seen politicians who have been kicked around. I have also seen politicians who have been tortured. And they have not given up their ideology or their ideological thinking. So when you talk about politicians, politicians are not only Mr. Nawaz Sharif and Asif Zardari. Politicians are also people who make public opinion. Politicians are workers. I have seen People's Party, women workers, being beaten time and again, spend years and years in jail and I have a huge amount of respect for them. I have seen politicians who were old nap politicians who were constantly accused of treason, who were arrested. And if it wasn't for these politicians, we would have had military rule not for 10 years, but like for other countries like in Egypt and Libya for 25 years or 30 years. I think that we have to begin to realize and understand that while military governments have been there, there have been a large number of people who have resisted this government, who have suffered. There are lawyers who have been beaten. There are lawyers who were flogged in public during Ziaul Haq's time. There were women rights activists, including myself and many others, and mothers of many of the uh, young women who are here, who went out against a dictator, were imprisoned, beaten on the streets, pulled by the hair. And when I say that Milala is our daughter, I mean it. Because we did all that we, as young women, because we felt very strongly at that time that we would not let Ziaul Haq bring up our daughters like the Taliban were bringing up and treating the women in Afghanistan, because this is how fast he was going. And those few women, we were no more than 500 in the entire of the country, were able to put a stop to the speed of Ziaul Haq's so-called Islamization, which was anti-women, which was anti-religious minorities. And people have stood up, even in the worst of times, when people, when Ahmadis, for example, and to this day are persecuted, there are voices that do speak up, despite the risks of speaking up for them. There are people who have talked about conversions, either through exploitation or forced conversions of young Hindu girls in sin. People have talked about the blasphemy law, 
which had been misused not just for minorities, but for a large number of Muslims as well. And people have stood up even when the Prime Minister's son-in-law gets up and makes an ass of himself. Because I think that when you play with religion, and when you start to use religion in politics, you're playing with fire. And this is where we are today. We are playing with religion. We have a judge in the Islamabad High Court who is constantly using religion to protect himself from being made accountable because he's accused of corruption, but he uses religion to get out of it. And today we must decide whether we want military rule or we want civilian rule. We don't have saints as politicians, but they are there. And I have no hesitation in deciding that because I saw what happened to Afghanistan. And let me tell you, because many of you are younger than me, that I've been to Afghanistan and people think I'm crazy for my honeymoon in 1974. And I went to Afghanistan after the war. I've been to Democratic Republic of Congo. But the worst situation was in Afghanistan because what had happened was that they were deprived of their culture, they were deprived of their art, and there were no political parties at all there. So to rebuild Afghanistan was far more difficult. And when I asked people, they said, it is only political parties that are a melting pot. And we see that in Pakistan as well, <coughs> that it is political parties that can be a melting pot. Dictatorships cannot be a melting pot. Dictatorships are divisionist. And if we want economic prosperity in Pakistan, I am afraid that we will have to trade with neighbors. I'm afraid we will have to mend fences with neighbors. We can have our differences. We can be extremely critical, which we must be, of some of the oppressive tactics of some of our neighbors. But that does not mean that we shut ourselves up into isolation, simply because that isolation lines the pockets of a few. And this is what we have to understand. And that is why not only do the people of Pakistan have to understand that there have to be more voices in Pakistan that will have to ask Pakistan's judiciary which side are they going to stand with. If they want to stand with the military, then I'm afraid that we will not deepen democracy because rule of law and democracy have to go hand in hand. And human rights have to be respected if rule of law has to be strengthened. So there are not enough voices asking that question. And if you see what I showed you, that the faces of judges are shown as big heroes, I don't think in any society you actually thank judges and have public rallies saying great judgment, especially when the judgment itself was extremely flawed. And so if we are going to make judges into politicians, an army general into politicians, and politicians into decoits, we will not be able to run a country. And I think that this is what I really wanted to address, apart from the fact that I hope that many of you come back, because you cannot sit here and wish that Pakistan will be built without all of you and the 
drain, brain drain that is all coming to Oxford, which is wonderful, and I wish you well, but we want you back. Milala, you too. just very briefly tell you that these laws were put into the constitution by Ziaul Haq. They were not put in by any parliament or anyone. But once you put in what I say, <coughs> a law based on religion or morality, it's very difficult to take it off. And this is not only in Pakistan. This country had a law on blasphemy for many years. And you know that it was very difficult to take that off. I mean, self-righteousness is something that has many customers. So I remember very well that when the 18th Amendment was being made, many of us went and begged the committee to take this off and bring it back to the original 73 constitution, which is normal that if you're convicted, blah, 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 you can't be a member of the parliament, which is fair enough. But the Religious parties refused, and PMLN went along with the religious parties, and today they are victim of it. Now, again, the parliament wants to change it, but they don't want to change it, because now PMLN is victim to it. But believe me, tomorrow those who don't want to change it will be victim of it. And this is a self-perpetuating defeat of the politicians who are not understanding that when you want to militarize yourself and be with the military, you are cutting the very branch on which you sit. Thank you, Asmanji. It was a lovely lecture. My name is Shazir, and I'm a student of policy here 
I go on a tangent if I may, because I don't know if anybody else can answer this question better than you. Um, it's about the lawyers' problem that we have in Pakistan. Um, I've seen and read uh, how some lawyers can be completely uncontrollable. And you being a former uh, bar president, I'm wondering why can't you have, or why, why would you ever bring reforms in uh, lawyers' community? I, I agree with you. And I think that you may have read that I was possibly one of the oh, few, two of us, uh, people who held bar positions who denounced it. And I think that it is demeaning to our profession. It doesn't give the true picture of our profession. But let me also say that I am also quite mindful of the fact that it is the weakness of the judiciary. Because these are the very lawyers that blackmail the judiciary. They create the fuss, and the judiciary then sits and has teas and cups of coffees with them. And then they have certain demands that they make of the judiciary, and they then fulfill those demands. Very recently, I had a case in which there were allegations. I'm not saying that they were correct, possibly wrong, that one of the lawyers who was an office holder of the Apex bar had his wife disappeared and there were, uh, there were accusations against him that his wife and child disappeared because of him. Do you know that my colleagues were beaten up in court with the judge sitting there for having brought that petition? And when I took it to the Supreme Court, the president of the Supreme Court bar, the same bar in which I was there, was sitting across the aisle against me. And I said in court, I said, I'm embarrassed myself because I held that position too. We are not here to protect each other. We are here to protect the law. We are here to protect vulnerable people. But I'm afraid that like the deterioration of all institutions, this is deteriorated. I, ha I have no qualms in saying that. No qualms in saying that. My name is Parup Siddiqui and uh, I am a doctoral student here. I just need to ask you regarding uh, every time in elections, uh, we hear a sentence called uh, the big towers are fallen, Bochu Latke. Uh, no party since now, uh, I don't uh, remember that, no party has uh, continued for the two times consecutively. So uh, what do you think that uh, apart from the military intervention within the, uh, in the way of democracy. Within the democracy, there is no continuity of, uh, so is it, uh, you can call that people do not believe and every time after five years or maybe less than that, people change their minds. Why there is uh, something like that, can you please? Well, let me first of all say that to change your mind is democratic, right? But the fact is, that it is a military that creates politicians. You go via our para, that is where ISI is. If you want to be a politician, you go via our para. If you don't go via our para, you end up like Habib Jalip and other politicians that you've never heard of. And once you begin to question them, then you go to the fort not as a king, but as a prisoner. 
And once you come out of the fort, that's when you become Nawaz Sharif. So what I am saying to you is that it's not that the people of Pakistan don't want democracy. Because I recall very well in the 60s, people used to say very openly that democracy is not suited to the geniuses of the people of Pakistan. This was said very, very openly by army generals and then the parrots used to repeat it, the civilian parrots, the worms that I call them, just before autumn and monsoon. And they used to repeat it. But today, even those politicians and political parties that are very closely affiliated to the military will not say that we don't want democracy. So we have come a long way. And which dictator has left amongst amidst tears? I mean, if you remember our last army chief, posters used to come up every now and then by his so-called admirers that if he went to Pakistan would die of grief. I didn't see a single tear. But when your political prison, uh, politicians came back, how vilified was Benazir Bhutto? Completely hounded, vilified. When she came back, how did people receive her? When Nawaz Sharif left, how did people receive him? So the ordinary person of Pakistan wants democracy. It is their need. The people who do not want democracy are those whose children can become members of parliament by going through our para. <coughs> and that is the section of society that we have to recognize that is against a democratic process in Pakistan. If I am a poor peasant, why would I not want democracy? Because at least in democracy, I can go to the local person and say that this has happened to me. I can at least go to court. I can at least go to geo-television. But in dictatorship, I can't do anything. And believe me, even now, it is dictatorship. There is a climate of fear in Pakistan. People don't speak up. People don't say anything. It's as clear as daylight that there is a coup in the country. And the politicians are only playing democracy. They're hanging on. That's all. They're hanging with their little claws on the cliff. And the boot, when it comes, they all fall down. It's, it's, it's not that they're, they're clinging on because they have the strength, because the others don't want to come in, because they can see an economic meltdown. They want them to go in a manner <coughs> brutally injured. And if you look at the role of our Supreme Court, I'm terribly sorry that I feel so uh, bitterly about it as a lawyer. They have wrecked the economy of this country. I mean, you look at their judgments on Rekodik, we will be paying money for it. You look at their judgment on, on the Turkish uh, ships that came, we have lost the arbitration. And they interfere in policy, constant interference in policy. You will constantly interfere in policy, but you will not protect a man or a woman who has been tortured by a police. Or you will not get any one person where hundreds of people have disappeared 
and they have and some who've come back who've taken names who has taken them who has tortured them not one person prosecuted forget about conviction not one person prosecuted and they call themselves judges under the constitution because to me a judge is a person who's a friend of the vulnerable the voiceless who will protect them not protect the violators and the perpetrators and i don't get that feeling in these courts one last question but we have to have a woman as well <laughs> thank you uh, so much for your talk um my question actually leads on from what you just said um and it's just maybe about two tiers of understanding in pakistan um and maybe just a brief touch on the social fabric of pakistan as well So a lot of the themes that you brought up obviously we would all agree with you in in many respects about democracy the supreme court I'm just wondering how you would um, address the point that these are large motifs they're large themes and it's a rather large word for maybe the common person in Pakistan to to fully grasp because their concerns are where the next meal is coming from where their water is coming from I mean load shedding affects almost everyone Um and so once you try and convince people of the idea of democracy and perhaps these things that aren't so tangible or necessary for survival how do you win that argument because the country's made up of 200 million people and about maybe 180 million of them have very basic requirements that aren't satiated right now um and so this idea of course i think you're going to win it very very easily intellectually but on the ground when you have these crooks whether they're judges or politicians or generals it's very easy to give out yes. laptops during elections or biryani during elections and that's the thing that they want to hear so how do you win the debate surrounding democracy you see the point is that i'm not saying that there would be a section of people who are very vulnerable who will be in any system whether it's democratic or otherwise be exploited but let me assure you that pakistan is a country where i see hope that people have a lot of political sagacity they are political minded and they may not call it democracy they may have another narrative to it but they know what human dignity is all about and they have their own manner of expressing it to give you very brief examples i worked very much with the bonded labor in sindh and a lot of people criticize me that you free them but then what do they do they don't go anywhere they don't get work so i said to them look i don't have the capacity to give you a job and i free you and i feel horrible because there's this criticism so you have to tell me how i should strategize it and this old man who was by that time become their leader <coughs> said to me look if it's only for food food is served in every prison as well i can go to a, with my children in any prison we know better than you what human dignity is all about in his own language and he said we we know the value of freedom and freedom is very important to us similarly a woman came with five little children to my office second story and she wanted to get a divorce and i said look and she was sitting outside where a lot of other women were there because we have a legal aid office as well next door and she came in and i just sort of said to her are you sure you know how you going to feed these kids you know what is going to happen things like that and she said have you just stepped out i said no i I mean I see these women every day. I mean we have so many clients every day. She said that woman who's there who whose ear has been cut off was with a marriage 
had she got divorced, her hair would not have been cut off. Then she said to me, how many women have committed suicide within a marriage and how many have you heard after divorce? So I actually hadn't heard of anybody after divorce, frankly. And she said, how many have died of hunger because they've been divorced? And I hadn't. And only three days ago, there was a news report of a woman who died of hunger because her husband had put her in a room and locked her. So she said, you go on with your work. You do what I am telling you to do. I, will, I have the courage to bring them up. If I produce them, I will bring them up. This is the courage of people. I honestly tell you, amazing, amazing quality of people. One woman came to my office with her goat up the stairs. She was from near Jhelum, and her son-in-law was a policeman. She said, I saw you on television, and my daughter is getting beaten up every day for the last 15 years by this policeman. And I have never been abroad, she said, because she never got out of her village, because I can't leave my goat also. So she came along with her goat to ask legal opinion. This is the strength of people in our country. You think people don't know? You go and talk to people about each politician, they'll tell you how many marriages they've had, what crooks they are, where they're eating from. You go and ask them about judges, they'll know where each judge comes from. And so I am very, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes when I feel positive, that's where the, my positiveness comes. If I only sat in my office, I would be depressed. But when you go out, you meet people, you meet women, you meet laborers, do you know of Okada Farm? How the Okada Farm women have been fighting military for the last many years. This is the strength of your people. Never under underestimate that. And that is why today I think we are not Egypt. We are not Libya. We are not Syria. We are Pakistan because we are South Asians. I'm afraid I do have to cut this off. I'm terribly sorry. No, no, one woman I must have. Oh. Very brief answer. Very okay. brief answer. Okay. Um, so I just want to say, as a Pakistani woman, uh, and uh, being in a room with both you and Malala is a bit almost emotionally overwhelming. Um, okay. So um, it's just thank you so much for being here. Um, the question is a lot less intellectually hefty and a bit more personal and related to your activism. But you said that we have to come back and we have to be not afraid. It's really easy to think that, but how have you managed, because I've noticed also with your appearances on television that you say things that I cannot even imagine saying to my mother, you know, <laughs> within my house. And, and you have that bravery and, and you've managed to negotiate that space for yourself on the media and whatnot. I mean, how have you gone about doing that in terms of either building your own linkages and connections and networks, or have you just, you just don't care anymore? Um, what, what, what would you recommend to somebody who is a woman who wants to go back to Pakistan but doesn't quite know how to negotiate these oppressive, kind of scary um, spaces? It's a bit of both, but don't forget that I also get scared. But I have willed myself that they will not fear me, put fear in me. They will not, and there have been times when I have not slept for nights and nights and nights, when I was threatened, for example, many times. 
for taking on blasphemy cases or taking on women's cases, especially of the Saima Wahib case. There were people strolling outside my house all the time. I was scared for myself, I was scared for my kids, but I decided, no, I will not give up. Because giving up in the face of tyranny means that you support tyranny. And that, for me, is not possible. you come back we are your mothers will protect you before we go because we do have to go i would like to thank very warmly armor of Tartras. i'm delighted that you made it here today we have him to thank for this series of lectures and i'd like to echo asma's pride that malala is here and that all of you are here and i'd like to thank once more asma for a wonderful lecture thank you.